We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month, which obviously no pressure, whatever you've got, we are so appreciative to have, but we have awesome gifts for you. If you want a hand addressed letter from Morgan and Isabeau, maybe with some special woe stickers, other merch, just uh, visit our Patreon. We are Womance on Patreon, or is it patreon.com forward slash Womance? We would be very proud to call you one of our patrons. I'm Morgan. I'm Isabeau. And this is Romance. A podcast about romance novels. About bat boys. About war. About discovering your sexuality. About learning to fly. About coming home. About a good dad. (laughs) But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This episode, you are joining us for a discussion of A Court of Wings and Ruin by Sarah J. Moss. Sarah Joanna Moss. Book three in the very popular Runaway Phenom. That's right. Um, We talked about the previous two books, if you're interested. You can go back and listen to those episodes. I might even recommend it. I would recommend it. Isabeau and I cannot be trusted to follow any thread but our own. (laughs) It's true story. There might be references that come up. I would also say, disclaimer-wise, I have read the entire available series in A Court of Thorn and Roses. I would say I'm deeply embedded in the lore. Uh, And Isabeau herself is now halfway through book 3.5. So we're going to do our best to not jump ahead. But if we do, we'll try and be conscientious and and give you a quick (laughs) shout-out. Should we even bother reading the back of the book? Yeah, of course. Oh, okay. Do you want to read the back of the book? Would you like me to? I would, actually. That is my preference. Real quick question. Did you read this one or did you audiobook it? I did both. Okay. Because I listened to most audiobooks at 1.2 and I couldn't consume it fast enough at 1.2. I was uh, getting to the middle of the chip bag and I wanted both hands in it. And so I can read faster uh, when I'm not listening. And so I then also got the Kindle version to read. So then I was moving between the two seamlessly with WhisperSync. Thanks, Amazon. So that I could read it when I could have a hand free. And then I could listen to it when I was trying to parent and ignore my child, which is what I did. For something way cooler. (laughs) Well, I mean, (laughs) my baby's really cool, but, like, also this book. You can't, you can't double fist a potato chip bag, you know what I mean? Like, you, like, you gotta, you gotta want to do that, and I wanted to do that. I also had a digital copy the first time I read this. The second time, 
was the graphic audio, which Instagram followers know I have been forced to consume against my very will. Compelled. Fated. Compelled. Yeah. It is ex- it is an expensive habit, but it's maybe bottom three self-destructive <laughs> habits that I spend money on. There you go. All right. The back of the book. The epic third novel in the number one New York Times bestselling Court of Thorns and Roses series by Sarah J. Moss. Vera has returned to the spring court, determined to gather information on Tamlin's actions and learn what she can about the invading king threatening to bring her land to its knees. But to do so, she must play a deadly game of deceit. One slip could bring doom not only for Feyre, but for everything and everyone she holds dear. As war bears down upon them all, Feyre endeavors to take her place amongst the high fae of the land, balancing her struggle to master her powers, both magical and political, Mm -hmm. and her love for her court and family. Amidst these struggles, Feyre and Resand must decide whom to trust amongst the cunning and lethal high lords and hunt for allies in unexpected places. In this thrilling book in the number one New York Times bestselling series... (laughs) Callback. <laughs> J. Moss, the fate of Pharaoh's world is at stake as armies grapple for power over the one thing that could destroy it. First published May 2nd, 2017. Mm-hmm. She's a Taurus. Real Taurus energy, I would say. A lot of stuff about loyalty in this. A lot of stuff. A lot of earth tones. A lot of earth tones. <laughs> So you had an interesting little reaction to you. You agreed, I think, with the both magical and political powers. Mm-hmm. But you had a you seemed a little skeptical about her love for her court and family. <laughs> Do you want to speak to that? I think one of the things that is charming about the second book is that you find that Resand, the uh, High Lord of the night court has a, has a very strong chosen family and uh, it really takes the nasty nocturnal wind out of his sails and it functions to humanize him completely and make him pretty affable and lovable. This like cast of misfits that he loves so fiercely. Yeah. Um, I have no problem with that, but the insistence on family in this text, I found both strange and, like, less affable as, like, the lines are drawn about who and what is family and, like, what they'll do for each other and, like, what they won't do. I don't I, I just, like, at times, and this is my most ungenerous take as someone who, again, double-fisted this chip bag as much as possible. <laughs> yeah. At times it felt very much like... I was reading about theater kids the week of the the big show. Yeah, when they're at their most incestuous. Theatery, you know, like someone's mad that they're like at the back of the massage line rather than like, you know, <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> and, it were, and there were moments like that where like it didn't, it felt like someone saying like, we're not just friends, we're family. And like they say it in that like sort of breathless, like only the way that a 17 year old can. And it was like, 
its insistence on itself was the thing that began to like tear it away for me. I believe the back of the massage train is Asriel. <laughs> and I am sure Asriel, spy master, is like Shadow Singer. Yeah. Like he's like, I'm happy to be at the back because I actually don't like getting my shoulders rubbed. That's and exactly. then the whole time he's lightly pinching I don't know, Moore's shoulders in front of him. He's thinking, I'm such a good person for not, for being at the back of this massage train. I hope everyone realizes what a good and worthy person I am for sitting at the back of the massage train. Yep. Classic back of the massage train energy. Caboose. Asriel. Big caboose energy. Big caboose energy. Uh, I think that is so true. <laughs> I also found them like so self-righteous and annoying about their like little pack. And the thing is, Feyre's actual family, her two sisters, are very present in this, the third book. Mm-hmm. And um, pretty much Nesta just gets shit on all the time, her oldest sister, even though she's trying her fucking hardest to be helpful um, and the whole time, it feels like Farah's just kind of like rubbing it in Nesta's face that she has this like family that loves her. Mm-hmm. And it's like Nesta never felt like she had a family who loved her. She or was protected just, her. Yeah, mm-hmm. she never felt safe and supported. Anyways, it just feels really unfair. <laughs> I also find them annoying. Yeah, I think it's hard not to. Uh, in this text. And it's weird, like, it feels like certain character betrayals happen. Mm-hmm. Like, Amryn being very romantically inclined. Mm. Feels like, it feels like Amryn should be, like, beyond things like romantic love. And see, like, I loved that part, right? Where it's like, he came out of nowhere, I didn't see it coming, and then there's just, like, this prince of the summer court who like will do anything for Amrin, a 15,000 year old death god who's trapped in a fey body um i was i was deeply into that i i was excited about what that meant i also feel like he came out of nowhere literally nowhere like everything you said i would say with a snarkier voice <laughs> So like there's the there's a scene where like I don't know and like one of the like upteenth battles and like he like comes into the war tent and like I don't know he's been mentioned vaguely like four times like I had to like think about this person like whether or not I had met him in the second book and he just like beelines for Amran out of nowhere in this like war council and just like starts Frenching her in front of everybody and like instead of like being like what is happening she just wraps her legs around him and then they just exit the tent to go have sex and I was like that's great I don't need this to do anything else and then it does other stuff and I was like okay cool whatever so like that scene, perfect. I just feel like that's such an insult. Like, <laughs> like Amran is this like fifteen thousand year old being who's like in a war tent, strategizing for the survival of, of a whole continent, of a whole continent, of a whole world, indeed. 
Mm -hmm. and um, is instead just like, yeah, I'm going to pinch my boyfriend. Mm -hmm. It just feels incongruous. (laughs) Incongruous is a good way of describing this entire text. (laughs) It feels like fan fiction of itself. Oh, yeah, that's a good way of describing it. I would say it's my least favorite of the whole ACOTAR series. I would like to talk to you about your experience of reading an entire series because this is the first time that you have completed a romance series. Yeah, that's true. I've completed other series in my life. Sure, of course. That's But like for a romance <laughs> series, which is a very common thing in romance, right? Like you'll get like a little coterie of friends a little group of villains a little gentleman's club and they'll all get married and somebody will end the tontine and like the wallflowers exactly you've never uh felt compelled to finish a series but in this in this specific case not only did you feel compelled but you have done it in like various iterations what is it about this series that has so captured you i have no idea (laughs) I mean, like, if you go back to our our discussion of The Court of Thorn and Roses, I, I picked up this series out of curiosity and, like, needing – I wasn't – like, I could feel a rut coming. Mm-hmm. I feel like you and I have become professional enough readers that we have strategies for heading off mm-hmm. not reading at the pass. <laughs> One of them for me is to try and find anything. And A Court of Thorn and Roses captured me. And there's this whole larger – community around Sarah J Moss in general and this series in particular that is super rich and it's fun to like look at the fan art or hear the fan theories the fan theories are particularly rich or you know the discourse that people have and all of it reminds me that I want to (laughs) so this series I read all the way through like books text on a page but I found out about graphic audio which sounded like a novelty and everyone was kind of making fun of it and so then I really wanted to listen to it but it was actually quite I mean the graphic audio creates almost a completely different book for (laughs) for me and I would say a worse book Hmm. but it somehow like enhances like all of the campiness of it mm-hmm. and like creates problems where I didn't have problems before. Mm-hmm. And it all kind of like feeds each other. So, for example, I hear a fan theory that Reese is actually a villain and that all of the actions in this book and in the next full book are him working towards becoming, like, overlord. Mm -hmm. I am more compelled to believe that because in the graphic audio, the actor who does his dialogue pronounces the word library, library. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's just, like... As long as it's consistent, it's fine. And so it's a lot easier for me to believe that he is a villain. Yeah, that sounds Because like he's saying library. Like he's never been to one or doesn't have a very important one in the realm that also contains some sort of like fear itself, the Byrax. He says it a lot in the third book. He says library all the goddamn time. And he says the word library. In the throes of passion as he's reuniting with his mate. Um, the other thing is I find 
Feyre to be kind of insufferable, which fits because you are constantly in her first person, Mm -hmm. which I disliked the Mm -hmm. first time I read through. I kept being kind of like desperate for anyone else's perspective. (laughs) And I found it especially frustrating because Sarah J. Moss has since published unpublished chapters, which is a whole other thing. It's just like the lore is so deep. And now she's trying to connect her other two series, I'm pretty sure, to this one after the fact. So I'm sure it's going to be well thought out and holistic. Um, She had other chapters like experimental chapters from other people's perspective. She has one from Cassian's perspective when he goes to visit Nesta in book two to do reconnaissance, I guess. (laughs) That's very entertaining and would have been so refreshing had it been published. Mm -hmm. So she's kind of like Feyre's perspective is relentless. And so I think the actor that they have doing Feyre (laughs) in the graphic audio is likewise she has this like incredibly modern voice. That's one of the things about having the original audio where it's just one person who just like is just alone in a booth and like fair is relentless in that, but like all of it's fairly relentless. So yeah, it's like it's less noticeable because it's all part of it, right? It's like when you're swimming in the ocean, you're like, oh, it's salty. It's like, well, it's all salty, so... Yeah, doesn't really make a difference. Plus, I feel like I have heard previews of the original audiobooks mm-hmm. i feel like that reader's voice is kind of like timeless and a little bit like cool water over pebbles exactly it's like vaguely british but like not so that you can place it in any kind of time or place it's just like yeah it's nice it's a, I, the because they switched from jenna kaido who did the first two to uh, another person and like it's nice they're both nice they, they both did a good job um this pharah in the graphic audio who does all of the narration plus her dialogue because it's in first person that makes sense yeah is like reese showed me his books and then i was like oh my god what a big book <laughs> Yeah, that's not that has not been my reading experience. It's like a voice that could only ever come to you over an iPhone speaker, which provides like, you know, I guess like further displaces you in time with this series. I think a lot of romance series, they go to different characters, right? Like Bridgerton series Mm -hmm. is going to go to a different character. And so as relentless and as annoying as I think Feyre is, It feels like all of these books are of a piece, Mm -hmm. almost, in a way that a lot of romance novels aren't. Also, in romance novels, I always get really hopeful that they're going to do another book on a specific character, Mm -hmm. and then they don't. They go Mm -hmm. with a completely different character. So I hate that. (laughs) Never the one you want. It's never the one I want. And so I feel like this book... In a lot of ways, this series follows like a more traditional fantasy trajectory mm-hmm. for a series than a traditional romance trajectory, with perhaps the exception of A Court of Frost and Starlight, which is a Christmas novella. Christmas novella by any other name. Although the fifth one, since it goes to Cassian and Nesta, like that's where that's what's so interesting to me about this series is like it's fantasy romance Venn diagram because it is highly unusual for a romance series to follow one character through three books that's like basically unheard of I've I've never heard of a romance doing that before Um, and the fact that our main heroine Feyre has 
not only a romantic relationship, which happens in romance all the time with the person that she's not going to end up with, but a physically sexual and like on the page relationship with Camlin. Whole book. Happily ever after at the end. Right. And then we get, so we get two romances with the same person. Very interesting. And then we get the third book, which is just essentially them like trying to figure out their newly wedded bliss to the backdrop of the cataclysm of their land, which is like, cool, whatever. Um, And then like, there's a Christmas novella. (laughs) And then it's like, and then it moves into like standard romance fare. The only, like the other thing that makes it more romance than fantasy is that like, this book is very interested in the romantic pairings of everyone always, right? Where it's like, here's this handsome person. Who are they looking at? This person used to fuck this person, but now they don't fuck anymore and they're sad about it. Or this person always wanted to fuck this person and then Amarantha showed up and he went under the mountain and couldn't fuck her. It's just like... That's very like romance, like a like a Regency would be talking about like the tongue. Yeah, I think like... A lot of the side romances that Mm -hmm. get talked about in the book are also kind of in service to the political machinations of this war that the other two books have been building up to. Sure, but like the idea that the only political machinations are only, they're like, they're only going to be seen through a romantic lens. Like that's, that takes it out of fantasy and puts it into romance for me. Does Highburn have some kind of romantic angle to his motivations? The Big bad? No, but Jurian does, and then Daikin and Mariam, like, Miriam. Um, From the previous war that mm-hmm. doesn't happen in the series. That's the other thing. I think, like, so I, I talking through this, part mm-hmm. of me was always like, she stopped writing in Feyre's perspective because she got bored along with the rest of us. Yes. But I wonder if there wasn't something else to the fact that, like, the first three books are a very clean package. Yes. Um, trilogy. Mm-hmm. So the fact that she... <laughs> I, and they also came out pre the books blowing up. Yes. And I wonder if she didn't realize that the fantasy... That the romance was more captivating than the fantasy in the books Mm. and kind of leaned into that. And then we get the Christmas novella, which feels like a rush job conceptually, Mm -hmm. not to say anything about the text itself, although I think some people might make that assessment. And then the next book she writes after this mega hit is from one of the sisters' perspectives. It feels like as much like a, like a marketing choice, I guess you would say (laughs) as like, a joy of writing choice, like a, a real, like pure creative exercise. No, I totally agree. Like it's shocking to me after finishing the third one that there are more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's going to be another one um, from Elaine's perspective. Makes sense. What was your experience as someone who's not only read a lot of fantasy I have. series, but a lot of romance series I have. in totality? What was your experience of because I did not ask you to read Wings and Ruin. No. You made that decision on your own. As I well. did because I too felt compelled. Like that's what but I'm often compelled by a series because I like side characters, especially if I'm not interested in a main character in the first one, which happens not infrequently. I often find that the second and third books are my favorite in a series because the first one does so much 
expository. Yeah. yeah, it's just like, you know, like, let's introduce like everyone in the whole thing. And like, there's going to be callbacks. And it's like, none of that's like, I'm not into a ton of setup, like the Fellowship of the Ring, whatever, like, let's let's get into it. You know what I mean? Um, And so like, that's kind like, this book was different in that way. Because A Court of Thorn and Roses is like, that book is so good in and of itself, just like a self-contained and then like, with the introduction of Resand, I'm like, well, you're so much more interesting than Tamlin. And like, you've got this like weird thing going on. It's like, I have to read the second one, right? Like that, like, and the way in which this text pulls is so good at what it does, right? It's like, they're truly links on a train, which is how perfect series in romance function, where it's like you, like you build up the second couple so well that you feel absolutely compelled to read about them and like that's how like a a really good series can make you care about the other characters in that way before they become like a main stage Feyre and Resand are 100% the main stage in this but also they aren't which I found very strange for the third one because I was talking to somebody about this like the experience of reading it and I was like well you know it's like pretty steamy and she's like the third one isn't it's like a ton of fade to black I was like oh my god you're fucking right it's like why is is that happening because like that's also like an interesting thing to me about where like the sex scenes fall in terms of like the text itself and like the building of the relationship but like the relationship's already built which is curious in its romance form um, but it's, it's intensity about other romantic partners that are like orbiting Feyre and Resand mm-hmm. is something that reminds me deeply of romance series and the way that you get like a ton of backstory for like two characters that are like pining for each other across like a room that's a hundred percent like a romance series thing. And I'm like, well, there's going to be a book about you or there's going to be a short novella about you or there's like, you know, and the way that that was set up, that felt very familiar to me. The places where it differed were also interesting because like Tamlin's just like fucking around and like, he's still in love with Feyre and Feyre and Rhysand know it. And like, he's still making weird, bad choices, but like I can, it's hard for me to see Tamlin as like a truly bad guy, which is also crazy because he's a bad guy. He, yeah, I think the text really wants you to see him as like a truly bad guy. Yeah, the text does, which I thought was really interesting. Like to to take a hero on such a heel turn, fascinating. But it had to, otherwise Reese wouldn't seem like a good person. Right. It had to. Which was also interesting because Reese did terrible things in the first book that we saw him do. And then, like, by the second book, he's just, like, the mayor of Santa Fe. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Also, deeply interesting. One thing I would – well, maybe two things I would acknowledge. There are more sex scenes in the third book than the previous two. Yes. And they're not fade to black. They are explicit sex scenes. The weirdness of the sex scenes is enhanced by the – immersive graphic audio experience where they do groaning and slapping 
as well as the swordplay sounds in the background when they're having sex in the war camp. And so something that's like uncomfortable on the page becomes way more uncomfortable. Likewise, the scene with uh, Amarin and the like hissing sounds that they do (laughs) is way more visceral. And it, it really goes to show where they're people are like desperate for a TV series or a movie. And I kind of get this is just a little bit of gossip. I kind of get this sense because Sarah J. Moss was living in Los Angeles to develop the Hulu series, and she Mm -hmm. just moved back to New York, probably because of the writer's strike. But Mm -hmm. it's taken her – she was there a really long time. I think she might be, like, holding on too tightly Mm. to her work. And as a consumer of the graphic audio, she should loosen her grip. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of stuff that works on the page does not work as, like, an immersive experience. Um, but yeah, it it is like a way more sexually explicit book than the previous two. I think what happens is that there are also a lot of fade to blacks. There's like, I mean, they're not really fade to blacks because like they are in sex and then like they're like, there's like a scene where she's like, and then I tasted him or like he ate me first. And I was like, <laughs> so like <laughs> explicit in the sense it's like I had dinner and then he had dinner and me. And it's like, OK, like there's a lot more of that. And explicit sex scenes in the third one than there were in the second and first one. Yeah. Like, like the first one is so much longing. The second one is just like longing and courtship and trauma response. And And like two sex scenes. Yeah. And then this one is just like lots of sex scenes of varying length and then also like a lot of fade to blacks. Or mid fade. It's it's uh it's just overall I would say overall the third book is a lot of content. So much content. When you said that it was like as long as Lonesome Dove, I thought you were being like hyperbolic, but it is a fucking doorstop. It is six hundred and ninety-nine pages. You know, once you turn like the into the second third. The second third. When, when you when you turn the corner into the second third, you are you're on a snowball down a mountain. I'm really glad I did revisit this book before we talked about it because so much happens that I think I would have attributed most of it to the second book, Mm. most of the first half. The other piece of kind of gossipy lore is that Sarah Joanna Moss wrote the first draft of A Court of Thorn and Roses when she was like 14. And I find that to be highly believable. That's highly believable. That makes total sense to me. Because it also has the kind of like mercurialness of a 14-year-old realizing the guy with black nail polish might be cuter than the quarterback. Mm -hmm. And actually is the quarterback kind of an asshole. Right. (laughs) But how can he be when everybody likes him and he's so pretty, right? Yeah. There's definitely that feeling in it. And maybe the guy with the black nail polish is actually nice. I and like know. maybe he just like had a bad dad and I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. There's like a lot of that there. I'm like, I'm, yeah. I, I will forgive the first one for many things. I will yeah. forgive the second one for many things. But it's interesting how that text gives us these two, and we've talked about the like the sudden change of world building in the yes. second one. Mm-hmm. The toilet. Mm-hmm. And then leading up into this third one, mm-hmm. like it's it's strange to think of them. Like it feels unlike a romance. We're not following a romance series. We're not following individual love stories or like 
individual discrete stories, period, right? We have this overarching tale. We find out Amarantho is like this precursor to this worst thing, which is Highburn in the second book. And then in the third book, the like resolution has to happen, right, with Highburn. And it's like this bigger than the lovers mm-hmm. <laughs> story that also hinges on it doesn't really hinge on the lovers like they could have very well had a sad ending and it would still be like a good resolution to the war mm-hmm. um, as is often the case with war content honestly yeah i think of it as functioning way more as a fantasy series than a romance series yeah i mean it just borrows so heavily from both and so like it's it, i don't know that i've like like the serial structure of it. The serial structure of it. The the discussion of romance is like most fantasy series don't talk about romance this much. The other thing that it does that it, it like what it it feels like, you know, in um, the Disney animated version of Sleeping Beauty when the two fairies are fighting over the blue and the pink dress and then it just like yeah. explodes. It feels like that. Like, this feels like an explosion of fantasy and romance, like, together. And so, like, some parts look really pretty in in that, you know, scene. Other parts just look a bit like a mess. And, like, some of the war stuff, which I like war stuff, um, was a little, like... Fictional. (laughs) Fictional war stuff. Some of it was, like, really fucking weird and obvious. Like, so, like, they go to the Myrmidon Mountains, and, like, the Myrmidons are Achilles' battalion in the War of Troy. And then there's, like, (laughs) like, the end. The scene is essentially just, like, in The Hobbit, the War of the Five Armies. Like, you couldn't... The ripoff is so specific. (laughs) It's just, like... Do you think the Lord of the Rings series is just like the Bible and that like, I feel like every time we read anything with a battle scene in it, you relate it to one of the battle scenes in the Lord of the Rings series? Is it like the Bible? The Bible is like the Bible. There's a lot of war in that one. Not like this, though. Like, you have your specific, you you specifically find uh, parallels and I think that's what a lot of people do with, you know, or can do with the Bible. And so I wonder if, like, Lord of the Rings is the central text period on fantasy war. It's a central text. I don't know. I don't know that I want to say that it's the central text, although I, my sense is that it probably might be. Because for me, this this the way in which that it, like, threw in what felt like Greek war easter eggs in ways that like weren't true but felt like if you know you know and then like literally just to have the battle of the five armies it it was stuff like that where i'm like i don't think you are actually interested in the war i think you're interested in this little family and the romance and like you you've you've set us on a path of war and now you have to write a war book and so like how are you going to write a war book when you've just been in Santa Fe mm-hmm. and like, that's why it kind of feels a bit like a stew. So like the Lord of the Rings ripoff felt like it felt cheap to me. Like a strategy. Like she was like, I'm just going to rewrite. Right. Like I'm just going to like, I'm just going to put it in green. Right. Rather than like red. 
right? And okay. it was, you know, I was like, okay. Like, she does she does reference a lot of mythology and a lot of folklore throughout. A ton. I saw a TikTok the other day. I should have sent it to you where someone was like, everybody knows Beauty and the Beast is the reference for the first book. But did you know that it's also referencing The Wild Hunt? Basically, The Wild Hunt. I was like, you would know that if you listen to Womance. You would know that. <laughs> You would know that already. Yeah. And so, like, there are pieces like that. I don't know. And, like, there's so much that happens in this text, right? So, like, she, Feyre, like, has this epic scene at the end of the second one where her sisters have been captured and turned into high fae. And then she pretends that she doesn't have a mating bond with Resand and, like, goes back with Tamlin, which is what Tamlin, like, traded everything, like, his honor, the spring court, whatever, to get his lover, Feyre, back. And so then she's at the spring court trying to, like, fuck things up and... It's all espionage. All espionage, which Act I... Act one espionage great and lucian is also like doesn't believe her which is so then it's spy versus spy a little bit like from russia with love and i was like if that if that was like the whole book that would have been a great book that would have been like in fact i would have preferred it if resand and Feyre had spent more time apart because like them trying to communicate to each other like all this longing like the fact that she's like I love you I'm so worried and he's like everybody's okay but I'm worried about like I loved that and also, they're just like she's always she's constantly sending him a vulgar gesture yeah always which is not my normal way of speaking but is the way that Feyre speaks in the graphic audience <laughs> a vulgar gesture down the bond down the bond which I got pretty sick of hearing down the bond, but I also like it works. It's like a little phone. I'm fine with it, and and it's in it's in in what it's doing. And then and then we have a road trip through the autumn court where we like hear about Lucian's tale of woe. Very interesting. I like I could have been on the road with them longer, and like yeah. you know the fight at the you know the edge of winter where his shitty bros show up, and like that scene is amazing. And then, like, and then they're just together, and I'm just like, well, it's, like, it's less interesting, even though the stakes are higher because the world could literally end. Yeah, the the war actually begins. Right, and that's how I know that the war stuff isn't, like, this author's best space. Or, like, it doesn't mm-hmm. seem like the text itself is very interested in that world building because there is so much borrowing from other texts and other stuff. In a really direct way in a super direct way like if it weren't in the the what is it the the public domain public domain thank you shout out to our public domain readle (laughs) (laughs) when it passes into the public domain like there would be copyright infringement problems here but like this stuff is is passed i it's just clear to me that that's not what this text is interested in, even though, like, it is relentlessly a war book, which is yeah. also weird. I think fantasy and, and politics always work really well together. Mm-hmm. And I think when you get to open warfare, like, the politics kind of fall away. Mm-hmm. And there's no, like, Farrah knows everything that's happening, and we know everything that's happening because it's all just violence on a battlefield. And then also, like, the women characters are always, like, nursing. <laughs> always. Which is very annoying. I think the, the 
that does kind of break. I think this book is the biggest departure away from romance, even though it has way more sex and way more like gives way more priority of place to romantic relationships on the page than a lot of fantasy does. Mm -hmm. The first book, our like main arc is her falling in love with Tamlin and getting a resolution by, you know, pushing herself and proving herself beyond what she thinks is possible and realizing that like she has this capability like the survival part of her is a gift rather than a curse and then the second book she has you know she's she's been totally changed by her experience under the mountain and now she has this other love story right and the the arc of that is definitely her making it work with resand mm-hmm this third book, she's already, like, Resand is it. He's her mate. There's no one else in the world that she could ever possibly be interested in. And he's utterly perfect, and she's utterly perfect. And so they have absolutely no relationship <laughs> conflict. Everything is externalized to this war. And it's it's strange because, like... Since there's another book after this, you feel like the whole point of this book, the whole point of the war was just to give them, like, another external conflict. And you're right, like, the espionage is way more interesting, but it keeps them separate. Which keeps them more interesting, like, as two characters. It's the will they, won't they. Yeah, it's not even the will they, won't they. It's just, like, the longing, right? Because, like, they they will. I know they'll get back together, and, like, I can't wait for them to get back together, and, like, that'll be so exciting. But, yeah, like... but I, I could have waited. <laughs> yeah, absolutely should have, is what I'm thinking. What if Tamlin had been, like, an actual romantic rival yet again to resand? That would have been really interesting. But coulda, woulda, shoulda. Coulda, woulda, shoulda is what I'm saying. It's, um... But, like, that's what I mean where it's, like... The ro- like it's like the spattered dress where it's like neither of these things is like perfectly it's not functioning the way fantasy would and it's not functioning the way that romance would, which makes it impossible for me to look away because like those seams are so obvious to pick at. And yet and yet the mess is also the fun and the joy of it like and the like as you just said like he's perfect she's perfect they're both super hot people and they like he says everything just right and even if he didn't say it right she can sense what he says because they're soul mated so like doesn't even matter if he gets the words wrong because she can hear the meaning of his soul and it's like all of that is insane but also like breaks every romance trope because one of the things that happens is like you have to learn how to talk to each other and like there are miscommunications and like there are conflicts about like how you want to like run a household none of that here they're just like in perfect sync lockstep simpatico boom (laughs) it's just like even when you think there's like a whisper of an argument where she's like are you are you gonna let me go and he's like i don't let you do anything you're high lady like you're my equal we can have a conversation and i'd like you to have a conversation with me but that's about trust babe that's not about me letting you do anything or he like betrays one of his oldest friends by making an ally of her of heiress her morgan's former betrothed who had like left her for dad and he create and the whole time there is like 
But I would inevitably side with him, even if he did this wrong thing, you know? But guess what? He didn't do a wrong thing. And more just can't put aside her own personal bullshit for the greater good, unfortunately. Unfortunately for her. That's a character flaw for her. That's a character flaw for her that she was left for dead after her father put three iron nails in her womb and beat her and then left her on the doorstep of the autumn court. Yeah, the violence in this text is insane. It's brutal and it's very intimate. Yeah, very much so. It's, which is also very unromantic, like very not romance novel Yeah, very not romance novel It's like all of the conflict that would exist within the relationship that would make the relationship interesting is absolved so that we can have this war be the central piece, but the war is not well landed. No, it's not. Can you talk to us? As someone who likes war. You enjoy war content. You like war movies and war books. I do like war books. Uh, Television programs. Mm -hmm. Perhaps MASH. I don't know. Sure. I have watched all of MASH. I I have. I I tend to not be interested in, in war content in general. Um, we know this because we do try to go to the movies together every once in a while. <laughs> and so as someone, I think you have this like background, like I, I can feel weird about how the war happens in this book, but I feel weird all the time already about when that happens. So like what makes this not work? Like I, I cannot begin to articulate. So. So I you think- have to. <laughs> okay. So like. As a text about war itself, it does a bad job for a couple of reasons. With that tantalizing cliffhanger, we are going to leave you until part two of our discussion of Akawar, where we get into why the war part really does not work for Isabeau. But we're also going to talk about some things that really do work, like our sexiest part and our weirdest part. So join us next time for the exciting conclusion of our two-parter on our third part of the A Court of Thorn and Roses series, A Court of Wings and Ruin. Wooly guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womance and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womancepodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.